Welcome to MMO, the Mike Mike and Oscar show. They cover films then, win the gold, but now we're talking picks up films for all of these shows. From Toy Story 1 up through Toy Story 4, this is the MMO, the Pixar Rewatch Show. And we're back. Welcome once again to the episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Hope you are refreshed off your Memorial Day weekend. And while you were resting poolside, Mike and I were in a deep, dark basement recording this because we love you. Also, oh. we, we burn easy in the sun. I'm co-host Mike One. This yeah, is co-host also Mike. We do, and we ate a lot of hot dogs. Uh, yeah. And a lot of hot dogs usually doesn't leave anyone refreshed. <laughs> Just reloaded. You should make a hot dog scented cologne. They do toilet. It's just eating a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> this is, uh, again, we genuinely hope you enjoy your short week. Hope you have a nice week at work and hope we can kick you off uh, in style here where we're doing another entry into our two, Pixar rewatch two series. Two gross men talk about cartoons. <laughs> As we will cover the movie Inside Out today, rolling right along. More than halfway done with our Pixar rewatch series, which is, you know, a fine place to be after 37 episodes or so. Yeah. <laughs> rolling right along to the Lucky finish. number 46 today. Uh, Mike, what'd you think about this movie? I'm I'm a fan. I, I, I respect it more than I loved it. I had it uh, to get into expectations a little early because yeah. you put me on the spot. I did. I had my expectations super high because I remember so seeing I. it and thinking like, oh my God, it's one of the best films of the year. And so I was sky high for them. And they, if it's stock up or stock down, this is a little stock yeah. down. But rewatching it yet again this morning, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, well, I think we're coming from the same place on this one, which is a little interesting to hear because this one does have such glowing marks. But we'll get into all of that and more. If you've not joined us before, for a Pixar rewatch episode that we've been doing here at MMO, what they are is it's a two part review with a very similar to our Oscar sprint profiles. We take a Pixar movie in the lead up to Toy Story 4, which is what all of this is for, and we break it down with two separate separate reviews for the price of one. The first half of every episode is going to be a non-spoiler section. You get a spoiler warning in the middle, and then it's all spoiler-filled for the second half. So if you've not seen these movies, if you don't want the rumor spoiled for you, don't worry, you're in the safe space. The first half of all of these Pixar Rewatch episodes are spoiler-free. What we do to differentiate them from Oscar Sprint Profiles is the first half of, in the non-spoiler section of all these episodes, we're concentrating on the history of Pixar, the company as a whole, what made these films, how they came to be, uh, what they were released in in the time frame, kind of taking a look back in time. If you will. In the spoiler section, what we're concentrating on is we have the 22 rules of screenwriting success that were released by Pixar some years ago. We take one rule and attach it to each movie and go rule by rule through movie by movie like so. So, like I said, if you've not seen these movies yet, if you've not seen Inside Out, don't worry, you're in the non-spoiler section. The way we start the non-spoiler section for each one of these episodes is Mike is going to run down the cast and crew for us. Yes, this uh, film Inside Out was directed by Pete Doctor of Up and Monsters, Inc. He is a disturbed man. <laughs> I'm going to get into it, but I'm wor- I'm officially worried about Pete Doctor. <laughs> He's a guy who goes on hikes and then <laughs> records to himself in a vlog the theme of the film yeah. that he would make, and that's a very famous clip now of just him in the woods. Like, what if... This is how it ends. What a wild guy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But uh, he's been directing the hits for Pixar for a while. His co-director on this one is Ronnie Del Carmen from the art departments of Up and Ratatouille. So he's worked with Doctor at least once on Up. And before uh, Del Carmen came over to Pixar, he worked on The Spirit, The Road, yes. to, the road to El Dorado. Not that one. The, the, stallion, <laughs> the stallion one, Mike. <laughs> not the Samuel L. Jackson one that only I own on DVD? No, not that That's one. That's a shame. Uh, we'll chalk that up as a missed opportunity the for road, him. The Road to El Dorado and all of the Batman animated series stuff, including the Batman animated movies like the one with the Phantasm. Do you remember the one with the Phantasm, Mike? I think I own it. Do you really? I think, yeah. The animated, is it open? Batman, the, no, it's not. The Batman the animated series stuff is top notch. That's like high quality cartoon and, and filmmaking in general. Yeah, I loved it. I just watched it, unlike you, yeah. who, who just buys things right. and keeps them in the plastic yeah, wrap. Like I told you, Mike, when uh, when streaming services all go to hell because of Anonymous or, you know, whatever, I'll be the richest man in the world with all my physical media. You're also the villain of Toy Story 2. That's right. I hope you realize <laughs> 
so the principal characters... I have no friends in anyone. <laughs> so the principal characters are emotions inside of, a, of an 11-year-old girl's brain. Yeah. Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec from SNL, Baby Mama, and this year's wine company, Amy Poehler plays Joy. Close, wine country. Wine a wine uh, company is company. what makes a vineyard. I guess it runs a vineyard. You're right. Yeah. Uh, wine country, yes. Why doesn't Amy Poehler get more voiceover work? Oh, she should be the... Julia Louis-Dreyfus. We said this about her right. in A Bug's Life, too. These are great voices. Maybe she doesn't want to do it. Yeah. She's too much of a physical comedian. She likes Could be. She, I thought she was great. A perfect voice Terrific. for voiceover. Terrific. Perfect fit. Phyllis from The Office, that is Phyllis Smith, plays Sadness. We have Richard Kine, who was Hopper's <laughs> brother in A Bug's yes. Life. And who otherwise played strange people for his other 225 acting credits on IMDb. He, of course, is Bing Bong. He will always be the guy from Spin City to me. Yes. Barry in SNL's Bill Hader is Fear. Yeah. He, uh, another guy. Great voice. Good voiceover work. He was supposed to, I guess, have a bigger role in this. And I wonder if he signed on, promised a bigger role at first. And then kind of had a, yep, a gonna, subsidiary role there. Going to get to that for sure. Uh, comedian Louis Black is Anger and, of course... I mean, <laughs> some things are just made for people. <laughs> the Mindy Project's Mindy Kaling, a.k.a. Kelly from The Office, plays Disgust. First of all, how dare you? <laughs> Oscar nominee from Unfaithful, uh, Diane Lane, plays the mom. And I liked Unfaithful. Good movie. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. It's all right. Also, Under the Tuscan Sun, though. So No. No. Yeah. But Diane Lane, I'm just saying, like, up and I'm up and down on Diane Lane. What? No. Uh, she's great. But because of you liked Under the Tuscan Sun. No, but I did like. Do you the, uh, own that? Is it in what's the, the shelf what's, over wait, here? wait, wait. What's the one where she is like uh, mm-hmm. an internet police and she's like trying to stop a murder that's going to happen online? She's like an FBI agent. Untraceable. I've definitely seen it. Yeah, Untraceable. She. I like that movie. But it's not Untraceable. She can trace <laughs> Good it. point. Yes, that's a fair point. <laughs> they lied to us. <laughs> I know who killed me. It was also a similar. That title. was Lindsay Lohan, and that was bad. I didn't see that. one. Yeah. That was bad. <laughs> Can I get back to this, please? What? <laughs> From Everything David Lynch, Kyle MacLachlan plays Dad. Uh, you have anything on that? I got nothing on that one, yeah. He, it just we've fits, talk, we've right? talked about him a lot, yeah. He's uh, he's not someone I would have thought was a voice actor, to be honest with you. But he plays like 1990s, 80s white guys. If that's... I can't argue with that statement. <laughs> Caitlin Diaz is the young actress playing Riley. And Mike, my God, look at the rest of this cast who basically just flew in for one line and left. Yeah. We have Rashida Jones from Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. We have Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Why not? SNL's Bobby Moynihan. And, of course, a uh, longtime writer on SNL and Wine Country star, or Wine Company, I forget which, <laughs> Paula Pell. We have comedian Paula Poundstone. And that sounds like a stage name. And we also have the voice of Fozzie Bear and Yoda himself, Frank Oz. Waka waka. Yeah, so we're getting comfortably into that Disney-type territory where, all right, we've made a shitload of money. We have it laying around. Why not hire ridiculously famous people to come in, even if it's for the smallest of parts, and that'll at least get a little notoriety. And they want to because they could say they were in a picture. Exactly, too. exactly. Of course, the mustache from Cheers, John Ratzenberger is also in this. He who was he in this? Fritz, whoever Fritz is. Mike, I have a major question for you before yes. we move on. This is important. Who would play your emotions... If your life, if your brain was uh, the movie Inside Out. So if this, if our, if Inside Out was based on us, because obviously as Inside Out showed us, each of us have our own personified emotions working the controls yeah. in our minds. Who's your perfect voice cast? Uh, not Ed O'Neill, but Ed O'Neill as Al Bundy. <laughs> is who? Do you, did you uh, ascribe to or you just know? No, it five? would just be hit. No, he would be in there. Uh, I don't know that he would be rage necessarily or anger, but he would be, he might be my joy because I get a really perverse joy, like a schadenfreude type feeling a lot. That makes sense to be your joy. Yeah. Um, let's see. Who else? Chris Isaac singing Wicked Games. He'd be my uh, my love if we had a thing for love. Which you texted was this. me the other day. He's like, I'm just going to listen to Chris Isaac's Wicked Game the rest of the day. <laughs> you do what you do. Such a sad song, man. Yeah. Also sexy. <laughs> Very sexy. So I'm a little weirded out that you were in texting me in my basement. I'm going to listen to fall in love. <laughs> That was your day yesterday, I guess. It's my day every day. So yes, Chris <laughs> Isaac singing Wicked Games. Um, I don't know. Who would be discussed? 
I don't know either, but I just know that Ann Ramsey from the Goonies yeah. <laughs> and Throw Mama from the Train has to Hey, dream Louis Armstrong is trying to kill me. <laughs> She'd probably be disgust. Disgust. Just a general disdain for sense. everything every family member of mine ever does. Uh, I have a couple of my own. Yeah, go ahead. Who would you, who'd be yours? Bob Newhart is sadness for me. I think he sadness. Just, yeah, he just works. Yeah, all just right. Works. Uh, Aquafina is joy. Uh, that's a good one. That's a good she's one. Perfect. Uh, Tracy Morgan is disgust. <laughs> that's also I, a good one. I like my disgust to be funny and and uh, outlandish and very loud. <laughs> yeah, fear is definitely Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> And my anger is George C. Scott because I like to Ooh, just I like yeah. to I like to brood and then I like to just just with the perfect diction. That's a righteous, fiery yeah. anger. Yeah, I like that. You also have a very high opinion of yourself, is what you're saying. I do. I want all Oscar nominated and I mean I want all EGOT people or just nominated people. Right. That makes Award winning yeah. people. You see, you see yourself in that light, whereas I just want to sit on a couch and put my hand down my pants all day. My fear would be Michael Scott because I want people to fear how much they love me. That, wow. <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. I think Very we should good. ask that question of our listeners and our, our, our Twitter people as well. We because I really would like to see uh, what kind of responses we get in those. That's a fantastic question. Well, very good. I, I, once in a while, even a blind yeah. squirrel finds a nut. I'm not familiar with that phrase. Mike, uh, you have the history of the Pixar company. So Pixar exists at all because of the hard work of John Lasseter, but it is made untold millions off the back and mind of Pete Doctor's declining mental state. Yeah. So this is is one of those movies where we had a lot of publicity about the quote-unquote brain trust at Pixar. And when we get into the specs, you're going to see that there was a lot of chefs tending to this soup at different times as far as the writing goes. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things, we've talked about the brain trust in Pixar before, about how it's just an open writing room. They have writers come in and out of different projects and leave notes and pass on storyboard stuff and just make comments and all of that is taken into account here. But definitely this would be a passion project, again, as Pixar is known to do, from Pete Doctor, who is not, again, a man in well meant standing this this is a man working through his issues with the animated medium I, i'm surprised to hear you say that yeah well he's this story apparently came about it's a combination of both doctor's own life experience of having a difficult time adjusting as a child pre-adolescence from when his family moved to denmark because his father was following the passions of some of a musician yeah i hate when that happens <laughs> and also the changes he noticed in his own daughter once she embarked on adolescence in her own life so obviously sure. the backstory to production this high in concept is certainly a convoluted one and involved many script iterations and its own set of drama along the way. The editor, Kevin Nolting, who's back once again, having done previous Pixar editing as well, he's even on record with The Hollywood Reporter citing that he believed there to be at least seven different versions of the film being worked on prior to production being officially underway. But there were also highlights. It was the first Pixar film where more than half the writer's room and consultants were female. And it was the first Pixar film featuring three main female lead characters in joy, sadness, and disgust. And obviously you can count Riley in there as well. Sure. What's interesting about Inside Out is how much of the story of its production seems to be drawn from periods of unrest and unhappiness. First of all, the film was being done during a period of general unrest for the company. It was the first film lacking any sort of input from Steve Jobs, who had passed away in 2011. Yeah, that's right. As well, it lacked input from John Lasseter. He was unable to offer anything or oversee any aspect of production, as he was squarely in the middle of getting Disney Animation Studios reformed in the Pixar image. He was mm. tasked with that. Uh, secondly, the final version of the film, as Doctor would tell NPR, in an interview seemed to come as a direct result of Dr. Surefire feeling of being a fraud. Huh. Uh, as he would explain, he had settled on a version of the script that he knew wasn't a hit. Uh, after going through all sorts of versions of the scripts, including ones where Joy refuses to let go of youth, and another where Riley was upset after not being cast as the lead turkey in the town's Thanksgiving pageant, the team at Pixar settled on a story where it was Joy and Fear, actually, who would get yeah. lost together and create this buddy road trip version of getting back to HQ. Amy Poehler and Bill Hader on a road trip. Yeah. Which, I'll pay for that movie, like, tomorrow. Yeah, he, he said this didn't work, which I can't imagine either because it would seem to write itself, but okay, Doctor realized he was quite unhappy with how the film felt, that they were in this place after three years of working on it, and worse yet, he knew there was a screening coming up with Disney Executive with which he would need to show off where they were in the filming and animation process mm. and get the approval of higher-ups. So in short, Doctor knew he had a huge meeting on the horizon and was sure he was going to be forced to present a product he didn't believe in, and actually, he believed this, said this to NPR, thought it would end up in 
his getting fired or having to leave the business. Wow. Yeah. This is a true story. Again, it quotes from NPR, National Public Radio. Apparently, Doctor was ready to leave the business altogether over where Inside Out was with this screening coming up. The man who had helped nail Monsters, Inc., Wally and Up was deeming himself a fraud and ill-equipped to be in animation as he even convinced himself that those past successes were all a fluke. So if you ever feel down on yourself or like empty creatively, it probably at least helps somewhere to know that the guy on top of the world in Pete Doctor, who has done nothing but make zillions of dollars off his thoughts, mm-hmm. also finds himself to be lacking motivation and lacking uh, sureties at times. Well, Bob Newhart's speaking to me now, and he's just telling me that it doesn't get any easier for us <laughs> writers. Damn so, it. So Doctor, infamously on a walk one day, mired in his own misery, started thinking about what he would miss if he were to leave Pixar or be fired over this screening. And as he tells it in what sounds akin to an immaculate revelation, he realized it would be the people and its colleagues and co-workers he would miss most, the very people he had spent so much time and emotion with. That thought provided the epiphany he so badly needed for this film. Doctor then realized that it was sadness, not fear, who should be stuck on this road trip with joy and also that it was the way in which these emotions resulted and played into relationships with one another which was the most important aspect of them all together so at that screening instead of showing the powers that be where the film was doctor with the blessing of the producers on the film and other writers showed where the film was going and basically rewrote it for them in this meeting and what would be what he was surprised to learn was the delight of all involved that's incredible. The guy just changed everything at the last yeah. second for a pitch meeting that was basically going to green light full production or not. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And, you know, after after years of putting your heart and soul into something to know that it's a failure and kind of <laughs> want to walk away from the business, run away. This is the same guy who made a whole movie based off of what if he could just leave reality behind with no consequence in Up. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that he was quickly, <laughs> his mind immediately went to, how do I run away? <laughs> I can't be here. I got to leave this business. Wow. It's yeah. just incredible. So I'm, I'm going to have a little nugget on that later on, but it, there was a three-year storyboarding process for this film, which it seems long uh, for any film, really, but basically for them to get the go-ahead to get into production, it took three years of all kinds uh, of story problems. So testament to them to figure yeah, it out. Absolutely. And under pressure, sure. under all that pressure, incredible. Pete Doctor and the story team consulted psychologists, and for this film. And <laughs> that didn't work. I didn't get it at first. And uh, one of those psychologists, I'll just charge your head mm. like it wasn't supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Maybe you can be a, a pal and cut it out. That's going to make it longer oh, and more God. awkward. <laughs> just throw a wah, wah, wah in there. Paul Ekman was one of those psychologists consulted. He famously identified six core emotions, including anger, fear, sadness, disgust, joy, and surprise. And throughout production, pretty early on, really, Doctor realized that surprise and fear would just be too similar, so they went with five core emotions and core cast members in this movie instead. It's kind of surprising that in the years of how, how prevalent psychology and psychological findings and all that have been. All that mumbo jumbo. How we don't have a, a number of emotions that humans feel. Mm-hmm. Like psychologists have all different types of numbers. And I guess the six that he went with here was just based off this one psychologist's findings. But well, you said, said schadenfreude? Schadenfreude, yeah. Schadenfreude yeah. was supposed to be one of the emotions. I saw right? that in my research yeah. as well, yeah. And I wanted to remember how to pronounce the word, but I failed. (laughs) Mike, another thesis statement from one of these consulted psychologists, this one, Dr. Keltner, emphasized that emotions organize social lives and structure interpersonal interactions. So I learned something new every day. That makes sense. And that's kind of what his epiphany was, that the emotions themselves are kind of meaningless all told as opposed to the relationships they help us forge along the way. But should we learn from this, like with our lack of emotions, or no? Nah. Nah. (laughs) Here's the next production nugget (laughs) with this tone of voice. Here's that nugget I was foreshadowing earlier. It took three years, Mike, of storyboarding pitches to the Brain Trust at Pixar before Inside Out was put into production. And it, it, one of the main reasons, like you said, they had a major narrative 
problem mm-hmm. where they had the wrong characters. So the character structure was a mess. But also they had issues basically mirroring the story of Riley and the story on the quote-unquote outside with the story on the inside. And it took them a while to gel and to cross those two narratives. And I thought it was fascinating to read about how they eventually did that. One of the major ways they unlocked that whole process was to get the right characters where they're supposed to be. When he realized that sadness was supposed to be with joy, it was like the perfect thing because it basically followed one of, another rule of storytelling that we had talked about previously where you have to challenge your characters with the opposite. Yeah, the direct right? opposite. Direct of opposite have, of yeah. what they're used to, what they're capable of. So that, that works, right? Final production nugget here is that Little Miss Sunshine and Toy Story 3 screenwriter at the time was like the hottest name in the business, Michael Arndt, who famously did like 300 drafts of his story for Little Miss Sunshine. He basically said, all right, I'm going to be a screenwriter and a selling screenwriter. I'm going to write this movie until I get it exactly right and win an Oscar. <laughs> but not, it, not a bad plan. But he was like the go-to fixer for a while. Like The Force Awakens, a lot of films hired him. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of big budget films. So Toy Story three was a real, you know, high mark for him after that screenplay, and he just got a ton of jobs going forward. But this was something he really couldn't tr- crack. You know, the, he was on this for a year in 2011, and like you said, it came down to a last-minute pitch from Pete Doctor to save this story. That's just a mark to the complexity of it all, I guess. This is probably the highest concept Pixar movie I think that we've done. Degree of difficulty. All throughout my notes, yeah. Yeah. Bill Hader also helped with the story, to to throw one little extra here. He'd stay long after his recording sessions and basically just pitch all kinds of ideas. So, you know, foreshadowing his future career. The more time goes on, the more we learn that Bill Hader is probably going to be a giant figure in Hollywood because he seems to be just a workaholic. Well, he just... Junkie yeah, I mean, the SNL writers' rooms, yeah. South Park writers' yeah. rooms. I mean, he's been in the South Park writers' room for you know twenty years, and then uh, yeah, he writing, just, directing Barry, which again we rave about on MMO Weekly. Yeah, hops into Pixar and yeah. that writers' room, that glorified sure. you know room of nonstop success, embraces him and allows him to uh, pitch things, and that's that's incredible. Mike, you got some specs, and Bill Hader does end up with a spec on this Inside Out, written like I said, a ton of writing credits here, written by Pete Doctor, Ronnie Del Carmen. Those both get original story by credits. Dr. Meg Lafave and Josh Cooley each get screenplay by credits. Michael Arndt, like Mike just told you, and Simon Rich each get additional story material by credits. Bill Hader and Amy Poehler each get additional dialogue by credits. Pete Doctor was the director, while Ronnie Del Carmen gets a co-director credit as well. Meg Lafave is on a lot of those uh, featurettes, and it really seemed like she's the one writer that stood out at the end of the day that came to, to really save this movie and wrote one of the final drafts. Well, there you need a female in there, right? I mean, they said what it was, a shock. Yeah, and they it does. <laughs> they did afford themselves. Doctor did comment on this as well. Uh, they did afford themselves an opportunity to learn after the debacle that Brave was yeah. in the writers' room and at having, least in uh, the, the pre-production. The Brenda Chapman, yeah. st- the issues that went on that we talked about in our last episode. That he he was very cognizant of that, and he's very cognizant of the fact that animation is a, is this quote unquote boys' club, and it seems to draw men more so than women for whatever reason. So he said he there was a concerted effort to make sure that women were highlighted in this process for writing this movie, uh, which is always a good thing. Least you can freaking do. <laughs> Film debuted May 18th, 2015 at Cannes and went wide in the U.S. Duh. June 19th. Your pronunciations. <laughs> Walt Disney Pictures and Pixar Animation Studios are the production companies. Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures does the distribution. Michael Giacchino can't get enough of this company as he does the music again. Patrick Lynn, the camera, Kim White, the lighting, and Kevin Nolting, like I said, is back again to do the editing. It's a 94 minute runtime on a PG rating, a $175 million budget, which was a 12.5% decrease in budget as compared to Pixar's previous release really? was the $200 million Monsters U, which we covered alongside Monsters, Inc. way back in part two of this series, which, believe it or not, Michael, was way back on April 13th. So don't say we aren't dedicated. My God, time is flying. <laughs> anyway, the budget being lowered is almost unfair considering just how much money this film made. $857 million worldwide box office. That included $356 million domestically, or roughly $4.90 gross for every $1 put into production budget. Yowza. Hey, hey everybody, here's a cartoon of your brain at work. <laughs> 
Inside Out, Inside Out finishes the fourth highest grossing domestic film of 2015 and the seventh highest grossing film worldwide, where it actually also finished as the second highest grossing animated film of 2015, finishing behind Minions, which outgrossed it worldwide by about $300 million, which I was surprised to learn. Uh, hmm. But Inside Out does remain the record holder for one of the more unique and obscure box office stats. Box Office Mojo has its domestic opening weekend at $90.44 million. And while the film spent its first five weekends in the domestic box office top five, it wasn't the number one earner at the box office until its third weekend. So huh. yes, its $90 million plus opening weekend was second place because it happened to debut the same weekend as Jurassic World which beat its gross by roughly $16 million. That second place $90.44 million domestic opening for Inside Out still stands as the highest grossing weekend for any film which didn't open at number one. Clash of the Titans right there. Universal versus Disney Pixar. And we know blockbusters aren't dying, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, it also marked the highest opening for any original property ever, overtaking Avatar's previous record-holding mark of a $77 million opening weekend. Mm. It would also make some history in terms of its critical scores. 8.2 IMDb rating on over half a million votes, which That's puts high. it at number 150 on the IMDb Top 250 Movies list, tying it with Pixar's Up, which we talked about, as well as films such as Chinatown and Kurosawa's Ikiru. Shout out IMDb Journey Podcast. 98% certified fresh rotten tomato rating on 353 critic reviews. Again, how can eight critics find this film as rotten? Who are they? 89% audience score, which I thought was kind of low. But, okay, it's still almost 90%. I would have thought it was in the 90s, but 89% audience score on 135,000-plus reviews. It carries a 94 Metascore, good for the fourth highest Metascored Pixar film ever. Wow. Yeah. 94. There's, there's three higher. <laughs> the critic love again translated into Academy recognition, as this would become the sixth consecutive Pixar release and the eighth of the company's past nine releases to win the animated feature category. And the love also translated into a nomination for original screenplay, as alongside Bridge of Spies, Ex Machina, and Straight Outta Compton, all four would go on to lose to eventual original screenplay and best picture winner, Spotlight. Plot premise reads, after young Riley is uprooted from her Midwest life and moved to San Francisco, her emotions, joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness conflict on how best to navigate a new city, house, and school. Wow, a lot of compound subjects and <laughs> predicates there. Mike, uh, we kind of hinted at our expectations already. How are you like coming into this, coming into this review? Like you feel like... This is a golf clap movie. You feel like you're going to appreciate it so much more upon further study. Predict how you're going to feel at 40 minutes from now. Going to listen to a lot of Chris Isaac. Uh, no, I, yeah, golf clap is probably the way I, I, I feel about it. We talk about expectations early in the day so much around here, and it's so true because having done some research and doing some specs, see all these giant scores, giant box office, this award, that award. So I was expecting something great. Yeah. I got something incredibly high concept, mm -hmm. and I think I took the most notes for any Pixar film we've oh, done really? so far in terms of like the first 20, 25 minutes. And I still am amazed at the efficiency with which they explain everything that's going on in this very intricate world. But I just didn't have those like butterfly -y, heartwarming, oh my God, gushiness feelings about I this I wonder one. if it's because the movie didn't try to be as funny. I mean, they're Could be. trying to be emotional in many scenes again the pg rating you know you're going to get into a an emotional movie when a pixar film's rated pg folks that is definitely something we got to look out for on future pixar films like toy story 4 is rated g so woody's probably surviving was toy story 3 pg-13 <laughs> <laughs> maybe i don't know we're gonna have to look at the rating for toy story 3 we're yeah. gonna do that right before toy story 4 obviously I am, like, appreciating this movie so much aesthetically as a movie critic. I think this is catnip to critics to see how ambitious they are with this storyline. But you're, you're right. Like, as an audience member, I had super high expectations. Rewatching this, I think they were too high almost. Yeah, I would co-sign. A similar feeling for me. And is that our fault? Is that the fault of probably maybe we just didn't get it and everyone else do that does loved it? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You know, I it, it's it's interesting. But again, I, 
we were 27 minutes in. I think I had six, five, six pages of notes written out already. And for wow. every one of these Pixar films thus far, it's been like, you know, how hard is this movie really to come up with? How hard is it to write a movie about escaping the world with, you know, the intricacies of doing it? Sure, I get that. And that's what makes Pixar Pixar and everyone else everyone else. But for this one, it's like, how do you decide what goes on in the mind? How do you land on six emotions? How do you land on those emotions being personified in the way they are? How do you land on the personality islands? Yeah. That, you know, and how do you make all the memories? There was just so much going on. You're punching your hand a lot. Yes, right I now. am. So that, that's a mark I'm of not a smart film. enough to see this movie, and it angers me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mark of a film that challenges you. It does. It did, absolutely. Okay, so... Let's get into some production values because I do think this is a much more fun film to study. In terms of the set design, a couple of the influences they really wanted to hit was the Doctor wanted the design to represent 1950s Broadway musicals. I saw that. Isn't did that, that did that work? Is that a thing that have, happens? Did you see any 1950 no, Broadway music? No, not at all. Back in 1950. No, that's a good point. No, I'm not familiar yeah, with it, but it also didn't seem like. I mean, I didn't feel like I was on Broadway at any point in this movie. <laughs> I wonder if we knew 1950s Broadway sure. musicals. You know, shout out to all our audience members out there. Let us know how Please, wrong yeah. and ignorant we are on that. But I do sense the other main influence. They wanted to pay homage to the cartoons of their youth. That was Looney Tunes. Chuck Jones, WB there. From MGM, Tex Avery, legendary animators. Uh, they wanted to pay homage to that visual style. Sure. And it does. It definitely seems like the most cartoony and stylized version of Pixar than ever before. That's a quote from Victor Navone, and I, I would agree. Yeah, it had to be at times because yes all pixar movies are quote for children even though as we've discussed in the series they truly are not <laughs> but because not only is this one for children but you're literally in the mind of a child you have to kind of over cartoon everything yeah and i think they did that and yeah i absolutely saw those inspirations i'll tell you what though i also saw i don't know if they did this on purpose or not but there are some horror inspirations oh yeah so i mean there's like the further from insidious is kind of tipped off here the like, pennywise's lair from it is kind of tipped off here in can some you, scenes can you imagine james wan going into his writer's room and say hey <laughs> everybody you, watch it you know out. you know where you can get some good uh <laughs> horror movie goods folks watch pixar movies. i think i, I to, to wan's credit i'm pretty sure insidious came out first but i know it did not it was two years after or uh, vice insidious versa yeah. can you imagine the pixar people like hey how do we make this happy <laughs> this is this is cool as shit james wan man he's really good mike uh to lean into the tom and jerry slash looney tunes look for the film they actually brought in tony facile 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 I should be Italian and know how to pronounce that, who uh, was an animator for those shows back in the 80s and 90s, and he helped them. Again, you could see the, the yes, there's a very classic cartoon look to certain aspects of this, especially there's a part where they're trying to chase it down a train, and they mm -hmm. have to go through all these fantastical worlds. Sure, I could see that. The HQ is said to be based on a mix between an Apple store and the Disney theme park ride, It's a Small World. Have you ever been on It's a Small World? Yes, and does that seem like mixed with an app, mated with an Apple store, it would make their HQ I'll make tell you sense? What I thought of, I thought of like the Men in Black headquarters, oh. which kind of looks like an Apple store. So I think they got that aesthetic right. That's true. Do you think Steve Jobs watched Men in Black? <laughs> or is he part of, is he an alien? Oh, yeah. Why didn't he like Pugs more? Why isn't Pug the <laughs> Apple mascot? I, I can't answer that. That's a great question. <laughs> answer that for us, audience. Uh, no, but to answer your original question, I do not see It's a Small World all that much. So how did you watch this movie? What size TV? What resolution? Because did you notice the fizzy quality to all the characters? That's what I really like. Fizzy quality? No, I did not. So production di designer uh, Ralph Eggleston, he had an idea that joy be animated like a collection of champagne bubbles and when he pitched this when he pitched this early on to john lassiter like you said lassiter wasn't involved all that much but he did direct a few things john was like great now make all the characters look like that so that's why they all huh. look fizzy they have like trails you know like they got like things coming off of yeah. them at different parts so yeah heavenly uh, glowy it's i didn't attribute that to champagne bubbles or anything fizzy. but yeah that's kind of interesting there's a whole article on this at wired.co.uk an article by alex godfrey i encourage everybody cool. to, to look at so creativity on display though 
with how they're making this balance between science and psychology and making it all a cartoon, though, right? Yeah, it's this whole... This is maybe the most creative because you have to stack, you know, as opposed to like Monsters, Inc., where you have to define the rules of the world that Mm -hmm. we talked about so quickly and efficiently. It's like a bunch of worlds. You have to kind of define things as you go because there's Monsters, Inc., you're at least confined to like two or three rooms in that movie. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. This one, you you take the Monsters, Inc., world... And you are introducing islands and areas Personality and trade. Yeah, there's so there's so many different areas of this world that they actually travel to. The subconscious is scary yeah. as hell. There's a there's you know Pennywise the clown in there yeah, right. and whatnot. I think they did a great job. I mean, I'm no expert, but they did a great job making the simple psychology make sense. Agree. You know, you have the short and long term memories. Even I know that your memories of the day get turned into a, you know long term storage while you sleep so all the machinations seem to make sense they're simple they're focused and yet they hint at just a vastness like we don't get yeah. to go into each one of those fun little islands or you know we'll go into imagination land but we'll just see other areas that we don't explore this movie seems like it's tailor made for like five sequels I-, I wonder why they haven't done that yet you could see why it took so long in production too because right. what picks we always, the efficiency of Pixar is for me anyway it's highlight they're able to take an impossible number of things and break it, boil it down to its most simplistic terms and the translate essence. that very easily. And it's very easily understandable yeah. because it has to be for children. And the fact that they were able to do that for the most part in this movie, this is the most impressed I've been by because yeah. there's just so much here. Well, they're animators too. They always talk about the fact that a, a good animation mm-hmm. is just taking all of one's personalities that they want to bring through their they're drawing into like one trait and Pixar's all, you know, from their beginning. How do we emote catharsis through geometric shapes <laughs> and only geometric shapes? You know, so that's what they've been built on. And by the way, really how good exactly it. balloons would it take to float that house? <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's a great point. We ready to get into the performances quick? Yeah, let's let's touch on them because I was I I, I love these performances and again, I think Amy Poehler should she ever get sick of being like one of the funniest <laughs> women in Hollywood, has a whole career waiting for her here in voiceover acting. Voiceover acting, great at it. How would Amy Poehler, voicing the character of Joy, be a rounded character? How would she have flaws? That To me, it blows my mind. You have these characters that are designed to be one-dimensional. They're personifications of single emotions. Yeah. And yet they all have these right. terrible flaws that rear their ugly heads at the craziest of moments, and they also have these great strengths that don't go with their quote-unquote ruling principles, right? Like anger will laugh at something at the crazy, yeah. at the weirdest moment, and he'll give up the controls. But the, all these characters are fighting for control of this 11-year-old girl. It's such a tightrope too because left in the hands of anyone else we'd be railing about how it doesn't how it's so contradictory to itself right how it's so it's hypocritical right. like anger if you're angry you can't be laughing at something this and, shouldn't but work they makes yeah they make it make sense they make it make sense and they make these characters rounded i, I just thought that was extraordinary that's a great point you also have great characters with so much economy because you're dealing with two dueling narratives you're dealing with the narrative on the inside, and the inside, the, and the outside, and the outside. Yeah. and you have to portray, you know, sets of characters in each world. I just I and they, they go the the, you know, there's not a lot of laughs in this movie, but the laughs for the most part are when you go into someone else that isn't Riley because mm-hmm. of all the groundwork that these emotions lay out. And we're so relating to them and, and we're comfortable with them and we get a grasp of what they are. They are so well-rounded that when we go into another person, that's where most of the laughs are. When we go into the dad for the first time, yeah. I lost my shit. I like, oh, man, this Love company, it. and especially on the heels of what happened with Braves pre-production and everything, it's like, this company can do men very well. <laughs> they get men. They are capable they of doing do that. And do. that, I mean, that killed me. And the same thing with the young teenage boy at the end of the movie. Oh. Girl, girl, girl. <laughs> yes, very funny. Uh, to get into some script thoughts for a hot minute here, perhaps the smartest break into an act two that I've ever seen in any movie, but definitely in a Pixar movie so, thus far. And they've had some great, like, let's float, 10,000 balloons into the sky and go off to an adventure. This break into Act 2 just blew my mind. I I really can't wait to get into it. I also love the fact that we're given this conflict between joy and sadness. 
and it appears to be like weird and inexplicable like early on and i'm like you know just huh sadness why is she acting that way early in the story and then that break in act two that big scene totally explains everything i had the same question early on i was like joy's kind of being a dick to sadness so why am i supposed to feel that way Am I supposed to feel sad for sadness? Or is sadness supposed to be so one note that she's just like, I'm not supposed to like her? We're supposed to be mad. Yeah. We're supposed to bully sadness. <laughs> right. That's what I'm using the word. The, the and for, for a company that's word. kind of been so black and white with its characters, because again, you need them to, you need children to understand what's going on at all times. You need to be pretty clear about it. I was kind of, this is the first time, I, even I was like, how am I supposed to feel here? It's incredible yeah. that they made you made you think that way, and then of course you go on an adventure with Snuffleupagus. <laughs> Here's your Oscar, Pixar. Here's your Oscar. And I, I look, I can't believe this worked. I, I can't wait to dive into the plot here after spoilers. Yeah, I think uh, you know we've done a good seventy-two minutes of the non-spoiler <laughs> stuff. So let's uh, let's get a spoiler warning on. Spoilers ahead. Hey, I saw a pizza place down the street. Maybe we could try that. Pizza sounds delicious. Pizza? pizza. Yes, pizza. <laughs> right That's good. What the heck is that? Who puts broccoli on pizza? That's it. I'm done. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. First the Hawaiians, and now you. This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for the Pixar film Inside Out, the review brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of our Pixar series rewatch uh, series. Uh, if, you've, <laughs> if you've not seen the movie Too many yet, babies. if you've not seen the movie yet, if you don't want it spoiled for you, this is a good place to hit pause, go watch the film. We'll be waiting for you when you come back. If you've seen the movie already, if you know what happens, if you just want to hear our thoughts, or if we've hyped up the spoiler section so much for you in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing what happens, this is where you want to be. All spoilers all the time. Inside Out, the review as part of the Pixar Rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. The way we start every spoiler section for these episodes is Mike is going to break down another rule of Pixar's screenwriting success. So rule number 13 states, give your characters opinions, period. Passive slash malleable might seem likable to you as you write, but it's poison to the audience. So essentially this rule is saying rounded characters, people. Rounded characters make them willful, make them opinionated. And look at the characters in this story that should be one note just based on the ruling principle that each one, you know, lives by. They should be passive and malleable some of them especially like, something like sadness sadness should be right. passive should be malleable it should just go with the flow and yet it's willful touching things you know experimenting around the room and touching other memories it's not supposed to touch and just giving middle finger to joy yeah and those that first act one there so it, it's also important to note that they all fight for control literally pushing and hip checking the other emotions for the button yeah the button to put their hands on the literal controls in riley's hq i just think this is fascinating to watch how they avoided all that poison to an audience because this entire plot of the film is a demonstration of this particular rule of storytelling mike we're not syncing up these rules of storytelling with the films and this one fits perfectly it's like a delicate dance you have to do when you have things that are so one note that you can't really focus on any one character too long sure less the entire feeling of the movie go with that emotion it's like a royal rumble right when i used to watch royal rumbles they're all you can't focus you, you, on you, one fight you, for you, long. used to that's what we're gonna go with used to <laughs> no you're right i mean you're absolutely right it is it's really interesting in the way that even when we have the road trip of joy and sadness and we are watching them we're introduced constantly to different characters mm-hmm. throughout them and even if they're so short Bing Bong's with us for a long time, but let's, let, I mean, take the character of, like, the, the two guards guarding the door, or that giant clown when they're trying yeah. to wake up Riley. I mean, we know exactly who they are, and the focus becomes them when they're on screen, more so than just lingering on the constant tension between joy and sadness, until we need that constant tension to be the crux of Act 2. And I think this is a good s- spot to kind of analyze that break in Act 2 scene. Sadness finally gets a core memory that is hers in a way, right? Riley goes to school, and she starts to cry when she thinks of all of these memories from home. 
and that creates this bittersweet moment. So the whole conflict between joy and sadness early on were just, like I, like we said, joy is kind of bullying sadness out of the way, don't let her control anything, and sadness is basically now just, like, can't control herself. Like, yeah. she's touching this, touching that. I, I don't know that. why I'm doing this. I have to, yeah. I don't know why I'm doing this. I know you tell me not to do any of this, but I'm not passive and malleable. I have to touch things. <laughs> and then... Boom, when that core memory is created after the big snafu in the HQ room mm-hmm. that sadness is causing, Joy does what she she does. She tries to control uh, everything. Control yeah. everything and just get all the sadness away from everywhere because I have to beat dominate that other character. Right. She basically realizing I should not do that, but she doesn't realize that till later. She should have learned right here, but Mike the all the core memories get lost. You get sucked through that thing, and talk about they always they always tell you to just slam your characters into Act Two. With that break in Act Two, it should be a crash. It should be a thud. They should go there sucked with, up through a giant tube. <laughs> sucked up through a giant tube. That's a perfect way to do yeah. it. And it's just all kinds of screenwriting rules and principles this movie follows and really sets. So let's get into heartbreaks uh, before happiness here. There's a big one right in the middle of this movie. Well earned somehow. The, uh, the bing bong and sadness conversation, is that what you're talking about? When freaking Snuffleupagus <laughs> disappears, Mike. I'm not, yes, there's a build, whole build. There's a whole arc of that character that's sad. When, now, they don't let you be sad with him too long because after his sled gets pushed off into the abyss of nowhere, <laughs> which is terrifying, after his sled that was like his only possession yeah. gets pushed into the abyss... He cries, but what does he cry? He cries candy. <laughs> so they don't let us stay sad there. That's like a little child movie trope. And again, Richard Kind is a perfect casting for this character. Right. Yeah. Uh, but when he disappears, when he takes one for the team. Yeah. And the whole, yeah. like he's, uh, the, the cheerfulness, like that scene broke my heart. It broke me emotionally when I first saw it. I That, that got me and I was, maybe that's why. I don't love this movie upon rewatch quite as much as the first time. Because you're angry at I, it? I'm angry at it. I'm guarded <laughs> to it. My George C. Scott is running the control room in my brain, and I I just know it's not he's not going to get me again. The, I have a criticism about that scene. Yeah. And that the only reason we got to that point is Joy basically Heisman's away sadness and says, Riley needs to be happy. You can't come back to HQ with me. I'm going to go up this tube that we found on our own. Joy closes sadness off of it. So she's being openly a dick to sadness. Yeah. Goes up the tube, and then the tube malfunctions, and she gets dropped down below. Oh, this entire film is Joy's fault, which is brilliant. So Joy, we're supposed to feel relief that Joy made it at the expense of Bing Bong, even though Joy only has herself to blame that she's in that position? B- Bing Bong's death. His, his blood is on Joy's Right. Hands. I mean, that... You know, you say garden, that that just outright... That kind of pisses me off. Like... <laughs> like now, you're, you're just being mean to sadness. Yeah. You are now the reason Bing Bong is gone, forgotten, essentially, yeah. in, the, in this world. It, it does work as a metaphor, though, in a way, because Joy... Trying, you know, the the joys of your childhood, culmination, imaginary friend. Yes. When you think about that as an older person, you having an imaginary friend is really sad. It's just an implication of you dealing with loneliness as a kid, right? Right. I mean, I had younger brothers. I don't think I had an imaginary friend. You were never friend. lonely. <laughs> I did a podcast throughout my, you know. T- 20s before we started doing this so that's probably my version of an imaginary You're cheating friend. on me yeah <laughs> <laughs> but joy actually or my joy and sadness had to come together when i was 32 and we started doing this <laughs> 33 <laughs> but i think it works metaphorically yeah metaphorically i would agree and that's probably where pixar is hanging their hat I, I, just the raw emotion of it 
I'm like... You're mad. Why do you get to survive and win? <laughs> You're the dick. This child should not have joy anymore. <laughs> right. Sadness. Right. I mean, if you think about it as just a character in a movie, if, if you think about it as the personification of joy, then yes, of course you want the joy feeling to succeed. Right. But I don't want this joy to succeed. This joy is mean. <laughs> this joy was mean. And I can't believe they went for that with the voice of Amy Poehler. Yeah. So it's just incredible how that worked. I also thought the Riley stuff was heartbreaking. Like, the behind this... Like, look, when Joy is watching all her islands collapse into the void, like, when Goofball Island collapsed, <laughs> that is an emotional... That is a sad scene. Like, she's watching all the replays of all... The, she's literally doing flashbacks, Joy is, of all those Goofball moments that made us so happy earlier in the film. And then when that island is collapsing, my God, when the Friendship Island is collapsing, when when the Hockey Island is collapsing, when, when Mike, when we think back to... The string of strikeouts that gave, made us give up the game of baseball. I never struck out. I was a great contact hitter. I just I stopped making contact with the ball, and I started breaking bats and throwing them on the ground. And then I gave up the game. They did a good job of balancing the inside and the outside world as far as emotions go. I was just as involved and interested in Bing Bong and Sadness having their conversation. Yeah, but you were team Bing Bong. No, I, w I was I was everyone but joy at that point. <laughs> I was invested in that conversation just as much as I was invested in Riley's open disappointment when she's yep. talking to her friend on FaceTime and her friend describes having a new great player on the hockey team and oh, it just yeah. hurts Riley. You know, they, yeah. they do have their good their moments of, of heartache that definitely worked on me uh, throughout this. And the broccoli pizza, that's just a nice. Congratulations, San Francisco! You've ruined pizza. <laughs> First the Hawaiians and now you. <laughs> but all of it foreshadows really in every scene it foreshadows the ultimate solution and that's the team up with sadness joy and sadness yeah. teaming up and they don't do it until towards the and end that people need to feel it's okay to feel sadness and that's reportedly what got mindy kaling invested in this script in the first place is that she liked the idea that pixar was developing a script that told kids it's okay to feel sad that you yeah. need to feel sadness as part of maturity but it's also such a smart movie because it's all about the mixture of emotions yeah. all the mixed emotions will save you act, at yeah. the end all the balancing act of it will save you at the end and that the emotions have to team up the characters have to team up for them to win i just don't understand why blink 182's damn it song wasn't the soundtrack <laughs> i guess this is growing up you it's a long way to go for a bad joke but it's like 182 a, and i'm gonna stand by it yeah you like a certain genre of music <laughs> i'm realizing mike uh let's get into some happiness moments but a, a lot of these happiness moments are jaded with uh, some sadness sure. as well but look act one is super happy everything with baby riley is just so much mm -hmm. fun right Agreed. um I loved how she's trying to stay happy when they actually move to San Francisco. I, I thought it was a touching scene when she tries to play a little, you know, living room hockey with, you know, their parents yeah. and a little piece of paper on the ground there. She's trying to be the peacekeeper. She knows her parents kind of need to pick me up, so she's there, yeah. But talk about, you know, flipping a scene at its high point. That scene goes from happy to sad. Dad gets a phone yep. call, it's got to go away, and then everybody in her HQ is like, he doesn't love me anymore. Yeah, this is My kind God. of like depressing movie at times and I, I really like that those types of scenes where everyone immediately freaks out and assumes the worst yeah. you kind of have to as a human being talk yourself into being happy at times and look on the bright you gotta like because sometimes your default is just to assume the worst and you don't mean to but we all do it it's it's incredible because the same happens when Riley gets introduced to the class that's a super happy scene she's doing just what Joy always tell mm -hmm. her look on the bright side look on the bright side so she's like looking on the bright side and then boom it flips sadness comes sadness starts taking control and yeah I mean like you said you can't help it she can't help it and that's when the you get a core memory of sadness because she cries in front of the yeah. class. No, absolutely. But you're right. A lot of the happiness scenes uh, do. There's some that have that are just straight funny. This film, I would say, like you you mentioned previously, it does as far as a Pixar movie goes, it's kind of lacking in the funny compared to everything else. But mm -hmm. they do have their moments when Fear spends his entire day before we get to that scene where Riley cries in front of the class. When Fear spends the entire night preparing everything that could possibly go wrong. And then he gets, the teacher calls on Riley and he's not prepared for that. He freaks out. What did he say? Is, as long as there's not a bomb threat or, uh, well, I forget what he says. As long as there's not a bomb threat or the teacher calls on her class, we'll be fine. It's such a meta joke too, because of course 
Fear is only going to be felt when you're not prepared for something. So the emotion fear prepared for everything except for the one thing he didn't prepare for. And that's when you feel fear. Like, I, I appreciated that. That's great. <laughs> uh, but obviously when joy teams up with sadness at the end, that is a, a bunch of incredible happiness moments. There's a whole sequence there that really worked. It, it worked better on the inside than the outside. Like, I don't know about you, but I didn't feel as much when Riley came home. Like, I don't care about the real life girl as much as I do. <laughs> These cartoon... I, I disagree. These cartoon pixies. They did a good job. I mean, Riley's home life is not an easy one right now. No, it now. wasn't. You know, she's sleeping on a sleeping bag on the floor right now. Her parents... This is so wrong of her mother to put this on an 11-year-old girl, but her, her mother basically says, could you just stay happy for us? It would really ease your father in my, in my yeah, mental the, state the if truck, you could pretend to be happy. The truck of all their possessions is due in, like, a day or two, right? I mean, it's coming. Okay. <laughs> So they're going to be able to brighten the place up. They don't have to eat broccoli pizza Jesus, and live don't in have kids, Mike. Shamble. <laughs> You're fine. Just fucking deal with it. The truck is coming. But I, I thought it was a stroke of brilliance. Joy and sadness uh, team up. Again, it's a thesis statement for rounded characters. It, it's incredible. Yeah. There are moments of, of true happiness. But it's important to mention, there are a lot of the moments that involve happiness are kind of have that underline of depression or unhappiness or at least unsettling. So many early drafts of the script went too dark. As, and as was... we've realized in doing this, a lot of Pixar early drafts did. Yeah. You know, and it happened over and over. really have to rewrite the crap out of it to get it around. And the fact that Michael Arndt couldn't do it. That, that, that says a lot. Uh, some more best scenes, Mike. Or do you have any more just straight up happiness scenes here? Um, not for the most part. A lot of the humor stuff that was there, I appreciated just because we were lacking it so much. I would die for Riley. But I would die for <laughs> <laughs> the boyfriend was funny. Yeah. Uh, what else you got? Uh, the research of the boy. boy de- what was it? This is the boy research center. Like that. Just a little aside yeah. comment that made me laugh. They spill a box of facts and opinion opinions. These facts and opinions look exactly <laughs> like one another. Yeah, they tend to do that. Uh, I lo- so the meta humor you appreciated yeah. as well. Yeah. I like the jokes when they went with them. I wish there was more humor in the movie. I agree. But uh, it definitely worked. I loved it when we got inside Mom's Control Center and Dad's Control I Center. I did. So those were the, some of the best. And again, that's very humorous. And again, we do that because we're so we're able to relate to everything that's going on. We have a firm grasp of what's happening inside everyone now. Yeah, prepping the foot. <laughs> <laughs> the oh, God. She's looking at us. What did she say? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what an idiot. Giving that stupid look again. We gave up that masseuse in, my, in like whatever Panama <laughs> for this. And then there's like the whole arc of that, you know, connection between yes, the, the two HQs sweet. of the mom and dad when they're both wearing the face paint at the girls' hockey game at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I love that that whole series of scenes there. And then really in the epilogue, you go inside all, or really during the credits, you get you go inside all these other characters that we never really met. The dog, kinda, the cat. Yeah. That's, those are huge payoffs. One, I mean, that's funny. One no jokes yeah. there, but they work. But it, I thought it was interesting that anger controlled the father's HQ and sadness controlled the mother's yeah. HQ. Yeah. It was interesting. That is interesting. I did notice. I didn't notice sadness controlled mom. I noticed anger was at the forefront of the father's. But though. that was deliberate. I huh. thought. Um, any more best Mike before we get into worse? I got some criticism, so I'm ready to uh, to go when you are. So I just don't like that the movie was so dependent on these like harebrained jump across a cavern off a trampoline, hitting a cloud. <sighs> Where a character's flying on the cloud. like So, that's ridiculous. Yes, it is. Also, though, I'm forgiving of it because there are no rules of physics in this world. Yeah. It's all literally imaginary. I mean, it's literally an imagination. If she so, fails, though, she goes into the abyss of nowhere. Sure, but... What a, I mean, she's relying in the first place on a billion copies of a fake boyfriend. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm forgiving of stuff like that. Uh, I don't understand the point of the islands at all. Personality islands? I like how she has, like, 20 of them at the end of the movie, and the sadness is like, I like tragic vampire romance <laughs> islands. <laughs> so... You don't like the structure. I just of the don't understand their. They like, didn't the use them. Yeah, I they're mean, the just whole thing, there. Like Imagination Land, uh, 
they went inside that, right? Right. And they turned in a crazy thing. Yeah. Other than that, there's a train of thought that they went inside, like the car tower, the all the dream. Well, they, they went, went to the, the subconscious. They went to the dream. I mean, they went to different. They went areas. to the dream production, which I really liked. Right. That was funny. I did too. But they didn't go like there was so you hinted at such a vast world of whatever 1950s Broadway productions that they didn't go into, and the, I think that's why again the, the islands made just sequels. seemed like a plot device i mean it's like oh we need something and we need a MacGuffin to crumble yeah you know and like that oh my god the islands are crumbling and that was it the island is just setting and set right you know set decoration really i mean you could i you could have i thought you could have had the whole movie without those to be honest with you you could have worked them in more yeah no either or yeah Yeah. no the journey is just bumping into snuffleupagus and (laughs) dealing with that Anything else for low light? Even my worst scene, though, like is fixed because when disgust uses anger to blow a hole through the HQ glass, <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Like Mindy <laughs> Kaling using like that. Lewis. That's very clever. Oh, uh, Lewis Black. It's great, great scene. So, it, it, as bad as that scene started, it kind of ended well. Any more worse for you? My biggest gripe, other than the islands, is Joy being just such a dick. <laughs> Joy was a dick. Amy Poehler was a dick. And I understand, like, she needed to be well-rounded and she should learn her lesson and she needs to learn to depend on sadness, but, like, she is going out of her way to make sad... to bully sadness, essentially. She killed sadness with kindness. Well, that's the whole solution to the movie is, all right, Eureka, team up with sadness. Right, I mean, sadness has the most patience out of any character in a Pixar movie. Right. Because she could have just broken down and cried and been upset about every way Joy was treating her throughout this entire thing. It's an abusive she, relationship. Yeah, and yet she just keeps on forging on. That's so incredible. I had, a, I mean, that like bordered on a little too... When too she dope. kept sadness, when she's like, Riley has to be happy, fuck you, I'm leaving. <laughs> like, yeah, and dude. she's also like, sit, stand, stand in, in the circle. circle of sadness. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I, I had a, <laughs> a border. You're trying to teach kids a lesson to have your protagonist openly bully and mock, patronize. In a, in a nice way, yeah. but yeah. That's a little much for me. Well, it's, it was effective at, at it, the end. Yeah, it, it led to a happy ending. I agree. So my final thought, Mike, is I want an inside-out movie set in my brain oh, God. during the finale of Game of Thrones. Just Spike Lee and, <laughs> and dragons. No, I, well, I have the voice cast already. It's right. Re- it's, it's ready. I, I guess I should write it. <laughs> Will somebody buy it? What are your personality islands? Oh, definitely. Uh, well, there's a whole Game of Thrones island. Yeah, there's like a pen Sports and a blank island. page. That's no, the that's blank page is my fear. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's there's like oh, bad idea island. <laughs> That, I come up with a lot There's of bad like ideas. Unearned sports optimism island. <laughs> right, right, right. Like uh, talking about our sports, uh, our glories of our sports lives. That really weren't that glorious <laughs> island. I'm, I like how I'm making fun of yours. Like, mine would be any better. It's like, back doesn't work island. <laughs> uh, professional wrestling. Drama on drama island. Uh, guys, we want to know your thoughts, obviously. What are your islands? Yeah, what are your islands? What and are your truly, personality what would, who would Who would voice your inside emotions? Twitter I think that's question. a great question. Uh, we're going to ask that on Twitter as well, but we want to know your thoughts about this movie, any other movies we've covered in the Pixar Rewatch series, and anything we've done. Uh, keep an eye out for more coming. I'm going to let Mike explain what's coming next from MMO, but if you want to reach out to us, we want your comments, questions, concerns, anything else about anything MMO related, you can reach us. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram. MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We're available everywhere you hear podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And if you have a minute, if you like what you hear, if you could leave us a five-star review or a little thumbs up on iTunes there. It really does uh, go a long way and we truly do appreciate and read every comment we get, whether on iTunes or social media. Uh, Mike, what's next? And some words of wisdom. So yes, the Pixar rewatch will continue. We still have Coco, we still have the Cars trilogy, and the Good Dinosaur. I think that's it for the non-Toy Story movies. Then we're going to do Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, and of course Toy Story 4. I'll have two rules of Pixar storytelling for Toy Story 4, otherwise we're one per film going forward. Uh, We're going to embark upon our new rewatch series, which is a loaded one. I watched Reservoir Dogs last night, which might be less scary than this movie somehow, Inside (laughs) Out. No, but that is a hell of a film. Uh, A lot of uh, filmmaking prowess, screenwriting prowess on display. It's got 
pros and cons and ex-cons and new cons and that's wordplay and but there's a lot to digest there tarantino is is a tough pill to swallow at times yeah i think it's also important to clarify we're doing a the tarantino rewatch series of his filmography we're sticking only to his directed feature films right uh so emphasis on feature films emphasis on directing so true romance as much as as much as we both would love to cover that's not going to be part of this anything like that we're just sticking to his eight Leading to his Look, ninth directed feature film. The episode of CSI is probably cool too, but we're not right. going to do that. The, the room in four rooms, probably not that right. either, unless we need a quick episode somewhere. Mike, we have Rocket Man to cover this week. Rocket Man! Thrilled for that because it's a bona fide Oscar film. Yeah. And I uh, can't wait. And uh, otherwise, we just got to give this outro. Finish it up. <laughs> it's going to be the ever. Find a way to end here. <laughs> just going to keep talking until something happens. <laughs> Uh, any any final words of wisdom here? Any kind of cute limericks you want to end on? Just the terrifying settings <laughs> of these Pixar films. They they make or break them, right? I mean, this one happened. To I would say that I would actually argue this one less so, just because yeah. of the the like the islands were made such a big part of the setting, and they just did nothing for me. They're, they're, but they're scary. Everything else is scary. There is scary. It's scary. absolutely. It's hard. I, 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 I co-sign. If, like, all right. Here here's a, a sequel of Inside Out. Yeah. Going through her teenage years. Yeah, that'd be terrifying. That's a terrifying film. I thought you were going to say, like, her bowels. Rated R. That'd be gross. We are gross. Two gross guys reviewing cartoons, though, here to bring this full circle. But, no, it would be a rated R Pixar film to do a sequel of this story. It would have to be another kid. That'd be actually really interesting to see them pull off. I would like to see that. In a rated PG setting? You could go to PG-13. If you're covering teenagers, right, you can do 13. Mike, their brand is built on GMPG. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you can't we'll tell to... me Pete Doctor doesn't have the neurosis to cover this. We'll have to look out for it. Maybe that's like a 10-year production uh, you yeah. know, that's been going on all along. They, they can't figure it. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these Pixar movies and others with us. We're Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to take the stuffiness out of award season all year long. And we'll see you next time. See you.